Heavenly Father, you are so great. You are worthy of our complete and total adoration and love because of who you are. And what we need is for you to, as we look at your word, cross the infinite delta between your worthiness and our, by comparison, lack of worth and come and meet us where we are and communicate to us your grace through our act of reading and pressing into your words, your promises, your commitments to us. I ask that you would be gracious and merciful today um, and that your name would be exalted and glorified in everything that we, we say today with our mouths, everything we think on and dwell on in our minds and everything we cherish and love in our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So if you have your copy of the Word of God, and I hope you do today, grab it and turn to Colossians 4. We're going to be in verse 7. So I don't know if you guys got that. Colossians 4, verse 7. We are at the final gate to this text. And so we've been, for the last year, uh, those of you who have been here, have been going through the book of Colossians And we are now at verse 7. We are in the last series for this book. After this series, we will be out of the book of Colossians. Um, And some of you are like, praise God. Uh, uh, But no, this has been an amazing year going through this book. And we've really gone into uh, the details. And we've we've looked uh, with open hearts to see what God was going to show us. And we're at the end of the road. This is the end of the road. The next four or five weeks, we're going to be spent in this text wrapping it up, and then we're going to go somewhere else for Christmas, which will be really special. Um, So we are now in the part of Colossians, which is the final greeting. This is what the subheading, if you've got the ESV, says about this section. Um, And I'm going to be honest, on the surface, when I read these in Paul's epistles or any of the epistles, on the surface, they seem really straightforward and not deep or rich. But my hope and my prayer today, and and really what I've wrestled with the last week, and even this morning at like five o'clock, is that we would see the realities underneath the text that God is trying to show us, that God has been trying to show us for the entire year, breathe through the people and the purposes that are in this book. And so let's read verse seven. We're going to read from verse seven through verse nine, just a few verses. And uh, let's see what God shows us here. Colossians 4, 7 through 9. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now again, on the surface, very innocuous. This is a guy talking about two people who are bringing the letter. Um, But what I really want to engage at the front end of this is, is the name of the series and why we selected it. This series we're calling Grace Be With You. Grace be with you. And the reason we're calling it that is it's the last line of this letter. If you look at Colossians 4.18, it says, Grace 
be with you. Those are the very closing words of this letter. And if you've spent any time in Paul's epistles, you know this is not extraordinary at all. Uh, He always closes his letter with a variation of this same phrase, grace be with you. Every letter that he's written that we can tell, at least in in the text, is closed with a phrase like this. And on the surface, like I said, this is very innocuous. Again, it just seems like it's a closing salutation, like he were saying, sincerely, comma, Paul, or uh, peace out. Um, And this is his signature field in the email. And so it seems like this is kind of a trivial phrase. It's just a salutation that he, that he has. But I, I would humbly suggest, it is that. It is a salutation. But I'd humbly suggest that there's something deeper at work in those four words. And one of the reasons why I'll suggest this is if you go to the beginning of Colossians, in the beginning of all of Paul's epistles, Colossians 1-2, for example, says these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's Colossians 1-2. Grace to you. So again, if you spent any time with Paul in the scriptures, you know that this is not new. He actually begins all of his letters with a variation of this same exact phrase. So my question today, really, as we start to make our way through the final pages of this book, or final verses of this book, is why does Paul do that? What is the reason? What is he after in doing that? Why does he close with grace be with you? And why does he open with grace to you? Why use that kind of language? Like at the beginning of the letter, it's almost as though he is sending to us grace, grace to you. And at the end of the letter, it's almost like he's saying, I want you to receive it. I want to leave this grace with you. And when we ask why you would do that, Paul, the only real answer we have from the text is that everything in between, really the entirety of the letter, constitutes grace from God for us. It is a kind of grace that he is leaving to the recipients of the letters, like, for example, the Colossian church here, or us. It is an impartation of God's grace to God's people through his words. That's what the letter represents. Now, what does that mean? That's a lot of really complicated theological language, really. What what do you you mean by God's grace coming to us through the letters? And I think what we need to do first is we need to define what the Bible is saying when it uses the word grace. The word charis in Greek um, generally means grace or favor. It can mean um, it generally means in, in Scripture, at least in the New Testament, it's used to depict an unmerited or undeserved grace, an, an act of kindness or an act of favor that isn't deserved. And we know it's not deserved necessarily when it's used in the, in the text because Romans eleven six, Paul says, it would not be grace if it was earned, if it was works. It, is, it, would, beca- it would not be, be grace anymore if you had to do anything to earn it. So it is a gift, When we think about the word grace, we think about it being completely a gift from God. And Paul is saying, this grace is for you. The words in this letter are a gift from God to you. Receive it and keep it. That's what he means by grace be with you. So today what I want to do, what I want to do with our time together is I want to ask three questions 
that are going to deal with our text, but they're going to extend out from our text a little bit. Three questions that deal with this grace and engage why the letter is grace. And my hope is that in these three questions, uh, they would guide us to a deeper understanding and a deeper delight of how profound it really is that we have this book in our hands. How amazing that is. It is an extraordinary thing. I'm just on the surface of it, that the living God who created every molecule in the universe and sustains them by his own word has written a book for us as a gift. So here are the questions. Number one is going to be who. Number two is going to be what. And number three is going to be why. Number one is who. Who are the ones who are transporting this letter from Paul to the Colossians? And why would Paul send it through them? Why pick them? What in our understanding of them from this text makes sense for him to send these people? Number two is this. What? What is it about Scripture and about this letter in particular that gives people grace. How does that work exactly? That's a very abstract idea. How does that work for people to receive grace from God through the scriptures? And number three, which is really the biggest question we have today and the ultimate question, so out of all these, this is the one I really want to nail down, and that is why is grace communicated through this letter? What is Paul's aim? And more importantly than that, what is God's ultimate aim? His ultimate purpose in giving us not just the book of Colossians, but this entire book with all of his words, Old Testament and New, 66 books. Why did he do that ultimately? So let's start with number one. And a little bit of number one is going to feel like a history lesson, so I apologize about that. Hopefully some of you guys are not thrown off by it because I usually don't go down this path, but... So number one is this, who are the people Paul employs to transport this letter to the Colossians? And before, before we ask that question, really answer it, I want to just think about this for a second. It is a letter. <laughs> it is a piece of paper with writing on it. That's all that this is. A piece of paper, physically, it's a piece of paper with writing on it, but really, what is it and what would they recognize as it is? It needs to be stated that, that these two men, in the, the Apostle Paul and the Christians of that time, knew that though it was physically a piece of paper with writing on it, it was more than that. They knew that it was more than that. I want you to listen to Peter describe Paul's letter in his own epistle in uh, 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16 says this. Listen to Peter's words about Paul's letter. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures." So according to verse 16, the last pas part of this passage, Peter says that Paul's letters are scripture. 
he recognizes them as being part of the Bible because God has given him graciously wisdom. And he says that people respond to these letters just like they respond to other parts of the Bible. The ignorant grab those things and they twist them to say what they want to say. And Paul considers, or Peter considers Paul's writing to be on par with the rest of the Old Testament, which is why he uses the word other scriptures to describe them. So Paul's Think about this just in the modern context. Paul's letters being canon in the very Bible are described as canon. Them being canon in the Bible, or them being canon is not an invention of a hundred centuries later or a thousand years later. It is something that the Bible acknowledges in the text. And Basically, what this is, is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament prophecies in the inscripturation of the New Testament. And Peter and Paul are not naive to this. They know what's going on. So this letter is not just a piece of paper with writing on it. It is so much more. Listen to Second Peter. Again, this is chapter 1. Listen to him describe what the nature of Scripture is. Peter says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter wants us to know that this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, God wrote that. God wrote that letter through Paul doesn't mean he was suddenly zapped and all the words started floating into his brain. God guided him by the Spirit to write precisely what he desired to be written. And that's what you have in your Bible. The words of God through the Apostle Paul or whoever the author was. So the question we have is, who are these men? Who would Paul, knowing what that scroll has in it, give the task of bringing it to the Colossian church. And our text in Colossians 4 is explaining that. So we got two dudes, Tychicus and Onesimus. A little bit of a mouthful in their names. And I want to go through each of them and sort of give you a background understanding of who they are. Tychicus uh, was a resident of Asia Minor from the book of Acts. We know this. He was someone who must have heard Paul come through a town and preach the gospel, and he received Christ. He believed in the gospel. And, and I think the thing that's interesting here is, is given that he became one of Paul's companions mentioned in Acts, it's clear that something incredible happened to him. It's one thing to have a missionary come through your town and to say, what you're saying is true. I believe in Jesus Christ. I don't want, I don't want to perish in an everlasting way. I want to see Jesus forever. He's my only hope. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to hear that gospel to do that, and then to say, I will give everything for Jesus. Where are you going, Paul? I'm going to go with you. We're going to, we're going to get the word out about this, this Lord and Savior. That's entirely different. To say in hearing the gospel, I'm willing to give up Jesus right at the drop of a hat is huge. And this is exactly what happened to Tychicus. He was so captivated in the gospel by the glory of Jesus Christ that it seemed entirely reasonable for him to give the rest of his life to this purpose. 
And so now he is risking his life to go across the Mediterranean with a small scroll of paper that will outlast the Roman Empire. Think about it, he's leaving. <laughs> he's getting on a boat. There's Rome. That's going to go. 2,000 years later, Colossians is still dominating the minds and hearts of people who love Jesus. And so that's Tychicus. He's risking his life for this. Let's look at the, the passage here, why Paul uses this kind of language to describe Tychicus. It says in verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant, those are big compliments for the Apostle Paul to give you. This is the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. And he calls this man Tychicus these things. And so let's look at them. Beloved brother, of course, means that Paul sees Tychicus as his own beloved brother, like one of his own brothers. In Christ Jesus, Tychicus is to Paul a sibling, a brother. This points to what we were talking about a few weeks ago with the family of faith. That's what it means to be in the family of faith, to have this deep affection for those who are in Christ Jesus, a love for them, especially in Paul's case, for people who are, who are in Christ Jesus and recognize, hey, listen, my, my goal in life is to glorify Christ whether I live or whether I die. And they're willing to risk their life for it like Tychicus is. And you got to imagine for Tychicus, this is a heavy burden. Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. He doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He doesn't know what Caesar's going to say. Leaving Paul is not an easy thing for Tychicus to do as a beloved brother. But he does leave with this letter in hand because of the two other things that Paul says about him. Paul says he's a faithful minister, and he says that he's a fellow servant. And these two, te- two uh, phrases in the Greek are actually really, really, really similar and difficult uh, to sort of separate Um, Because the word for minister, faithful minister, in Greek is the same word we get the word deacon from at a church. A deacon of the church is a servant. Literally means servant at the church. English, we take the word minister to mean pastor, but that's not what it meant in the original Greek. The original translation for this was was someone who would administer service. And so when Paul says that, that Tychicus is a faithful minister, what he means is that I know that he's going to get the job done. He is a servant of the Lord Jesus, and he's going to get the job done. Now, the question I have when I look at this, and I see these two words in the Greek that are very similar, is why use these two? Is it redundant? Are you, like he says, faithful minister, faithful servant, and fellow servant. Well, the reason that he uses these two words is that the word for servant here is actually the word in Greek, doulos. And what that literally means is slave, It is significantly beyond the idea of just someone who's willing to serve. And it goes into this idea of being owned and dominated by a person, a reality. And that word doulos is what Paul uses to describe Tychicus. Jesus dominates this man's life. And everything he does, no matter what it is, is for king and kingdom. He is to Paul a fellow slave in the Lord. And Paul is saying that the reason I could say this about Tychicus is I know that he will give his life 
to get this letter to you. It's that important. And then he continues on in verse 8 through 9, and he talks about this second man, Onesimus. Listen to verse 8. It says, I have sent him, this is Tychicus he's talking about, to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Onesimus is this other person that Paul is sending with Tychicus, and he's entrusted to help Tychicus get this letter to the Colossian church. He calls Onesimus one of you. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that Onesimus was born in the same region of the Colossian church and the Laodicean church who will be recipients of this letter. He was born in that same region, and he's actually a very interesting character. This is not the only time that we hear about him in the New Testament. Paul doesn't call him a slave here. Notice that. He calls him a faithful and beloved brother. But the thing that's ironic about Onesimus is he actually is a literal slave of a man by the name of Philemon. And if you were to turn to the last part of Paul's epistles, the very last book in his writings in the New Testament is the epistle to Philemon. It's a letter to this man, Philemon, the one that Onesimus, in terms of the government, in terms of the Greek culture, belongs to by law. And in that letter, that short epistle, Paul is enumerating to Philemon all the ways that Onesimus has blessed him and blessed his ministry, and he's pleading with Philemon, release him from the bond of being a slave. Release him and receive him as a brother in Christ. Let's look at these words. They're in Philemon verse 13 through 16. It says, I would have been glad to keep him, Onesimus, with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness may not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For perhaps this was why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. It's amazing to me that this early, 2,000 years ago, the Christian ethic so anathematized slavery, despite its pervasiveness in Greek culture, that Paul could be this impetuous and say, hey, listen, you're a Christian. You're a Christian, Philemon. You know the right thing to do. Release him and receive him as a brother, not only in the flesh, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an amazing thing. And this Onesimus is the same man who Paul is talking about bringing with Tychicus this Colossian letter. And one of the things I want to see really by this brief sort of like survey of these two characters is these are real people. These are real flesh and blood human beings caught up in a story much larger than themselves, just like us. Human beings. One of these is a slave that's desiring freedom from his earthly master, Philemon. The other one is a free man who wants nothing more than to be a slave to Christ Jesus, his heavenly master. And both of these are going to Colossae with this letter in their possession. And in this passage that we just read in Colossians 4, we see 
Paul tell the Colossian church the reason why I sent these men? I sent these men, verse 7, he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. Verse 8 says, I have sent him, Tychicus, to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And then he reiterates it in verse 4 about both of them. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So the point for Paul in this greeting, at the beginning, front end of this greeting, closing this book, is he wants the Colossian church to know how he's doing. He's in prison. His life is threatened right now. And he wants their hearts to be encouraged, not only through the word about how he's doing, but through the very letter itself. The main means of his encouragement through Tychicus to the Colossian church is his letter. Words from God that he has given Paul for the people of Colossae. And that's the grace that we're talking about today. Which brings us to the second question that we've got. That was who is transporting it? Faithful people who can get it to where it needs to go because it needs to get there. Number two is, what is it about the letter that gives the Colossians grace? How, how does God, through Paul's writing, communicate grace to the Colossian Christians? Is it simply like there's a moral lesson in there, or he recites some theological facts and he wants them to get the facts right? Is that what it is? Is it, is it a lesson that should be obeyed? And the answer is that the grace that Paul is referring to here is not those things, mainly, although there are moral lessons and there are important things that theologically that they need to know. The grace here is something else. And I, I want to go to 2 Timothy 2, really, to help us understand the meaning. I'm going to read the first seven verses of 2 Timothy 2. And I want you to listen to the process by which grace is mediated to Timothy through, God, through Paul's writings from the Spirit of God. It says, You then, my child, this is Paul talking to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Then he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. That's huge. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So Paul, you need to know, loves Timothy. Timothy to Paul is a son. He loves him. He's known him since he was young. He has sent him to the Ephesian church to pastor this church as a young man. And Paul is in prison and in this text, he is awaiting execution. This is years after the Colossian letter. And he knows it's coming soon. In fact, he will, at the end of this letter, tell Timothy, please come quickly because I don't know how long I got. And he's speaking to Paul right now, or to Timothy right now, because he wants to encourage his heart, just like he's doing through Tychicus and Onesimus to the Colossian church. He wants to encourage Timothy and strengthen him because the church across the known world is on the edge of an outbreak of persecution unlike they've ever seen before. Timothy is about to get body slammed by real suffering. 
He hasn't known suffering yet, and he's about to get it. And Paul wants him to take heart and to be ready to suffer for Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins this chapter with, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Strengthened by the grace. What does he mean? Imagine you're Timothy. You're reading this letter, and you get to that part. How do you respond? How does strength come to you in that moment by the grace of God? How does that grace come to you that is in Christ Jesus? How does it arrive at you? You're just reading a letter. Nouns, verbs, adverbs, adjectives, they're words and sentences. How is the grace of God communicated to you through that? How does Timothy get strength? Well, Paul tells him, He first says, you need to be ready to suffer, Timothy. You need to be ready to endure suffering for Christ Jesus. And then he uses these three stunning analogies that really deserve an entire sermon dedicated to them. This analogy of a fellow soldier, this analogy of an athlete competing for a crown, and this analogy of a farmer fighting to get the first crops. He uses these three analogies, all of them to show this is how you endure suffering. This is how you're a Christian warrior. You do these things this way. You follow the rules. You fight the good fight. You hang on to Christ. And then he says something extraordinary in verse 7. Let's look at it. He tells Timothy how to receive the grace that he mentioned in verse 1. Look at verse 7. It says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul tells Timothy to think, which in this context is extremely remarkable because what it says is that in the miracle of God granting Timothy understanding in the scriptures, in his writing, in his letter to him, it, it's, it comes through the human act of thinking about what he said. Paul doesn't tell Timothy, you're going to get a vision here in a few minutes. He doesn't say, hey, listen, there's this mystic ritual that you got to do and then the knowledge just gets plopped in your head and you're strengthened suddenly. That's not the way it works. He says, think. And he means when you read this book, you need to think hard about what it says. This is not a newspaper, Timothy. This is not a piece of fiction, Timothy, that you're reading for your recreation. This is the word of God. You need to think hard about it. You're not just consuming data here. Think over the meaning and the reality that lit, sits underneath those words and sentences. And in that thinking, according to Apost- the Apostle Paul, this is how God gives his people understanding. This is how God imparts to us grace through the meaning of the scripture. As it is contemplated, as it is embraced by our minds, it infiltrates our hearts And that's what happens through thinking. And so let's talk about the letter to the Colossians. I know a lot of you guys were here for the full course of that letter. And if we could distill everything that that letter said, and it said a lot of really glorious, amazing things, the central message of that letter that we've compassed for the past year 
is that the reason that Christians can pursue any kind of Christ-exalting holiness in their life is because of the supremacy, the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's the reason why. That's the main point of the letter to the Colossians. The purpose of this letter is the glory of Jesus Christ in the life of the Christian. And Paul's sending this letter to the Colossian church, not just to instruct them of theological facts, but that they would think hard over what he's written and that in thinking they would see the supremacy of Christ Jesus for what it really is and they would embrace it as a delightful truth, as a a marvelous truth. Like when this truth, the, the Colossian letter, collides with their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, they see it in a transformative way. You've all seen things like this before. You've seen something that is, the word indelible is often attached to this. You can't forget it. It is with you forever. You will never forget it. The reality of God in the scriptures is like that times 10. You will not, it will change who you are when you think over the text. The kind of seeing that you do here changes you forever. That's the grace that Paul's communicating to the Colossians through the letter. And this kind of grace, if you remember in Colossians 1, we talked about the fact that he's commending them to be stable and steadfast, to continue in the faith, um, to not shift from the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't shift from it. Hang on to Jesus. And this letter and their embracing of that truth is the very means by which God anchors them to that hope. He does it through the words in the scripture. I'm not going to let you go, and you won't let this go because I ain't letting you go. That's exactly what happens here by the power of the Holy Spirit. And everything I've just said about Paul writing this to the Colossians is true about every human being in this room right now. This is how God anchors you to the hope of the gospel. He does it through his word. This isn't a magic act. It isn't a kind of ritual. It is through the normal, everyday act of thinking. In fact, this is probably the main reason God gave us brains, to think over his words. This book does have words, but here's the deal. Inside those words, underneath the words, there's a meaning that keeps us connected to Jesus Christ and embracing the gospel. God has promised to bring us home. He's promised to do it. He's going to do it. He will accomplish that promise. But the way in which he accomplishes it is through his words, through this book, through the significance of this message, which is why your Bible is extraordinarily important. It is almost impossible for me to overstate the significance of the Word of God in the life of a Christian. It's, um, it's almost impossible. Which brings me to the third and final question. Why is it that God does this this way? Why does he give us his grace through his words, through the scripture? What is the, and what is the ultimate purpose of God. We've already talked about one purpose. What is the ultimate purpose of God? The purpose we've already talked about is salvation. Some might think, well, that's got to be the ultimate purpose. He wants us with him forever. And there's truth to that, but it isn't the ultimate purpose. 
Um, it is a purpose, though. So let's look at 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16. I want you to see this text. See how the same book that Paul was writing to Timothy, it's the last book, and he's telling Timothy about the significance of Scripture, ironically, in a letter that will become Scripture, that is Scripture, as Timothy receives it. 2 Timothy three fifteen through 16, Paul says to him, From childhood, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what Scripture does. Paul is saying here that Scripture is God-breathed. The word in Greek is theonostos. When we read these words, it's just normal words. They are breathed out by God for our edification. And he says, scriptures, the sacred writings, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So it is through the scriptures that we can receive eternal life because what they do is they communicate to us the reality of Jesus Christ in the necessity for us to receive him and embrace him as our Lord, as our Savior, as our treasure. In other words, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That isn't poetry. That's reality. We live because God has spoken. Without God, there is no salvation. There is no hope. He doesn't speak. We get no hope. But if he speaks, there is salvation and there is hope. And he has certainly spoken. I, I don't know if you guys remember the, the incident in, uh, at the end of John 6. J- Jesus is with his disciples, and um, <laughs> he's just said something very, very hard for people to understand. Um, and he's said it to them, and, and almost all of the people that are with him start to go away, except for the 12. I mean, we're talking droves of people are leaving because of something he said. He definitely knew how to clear a room. And he turns to his disciples, his 12. And he says to them, you guys going to go too? You guys want to leave me as well? And Peter looks at him and says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. He knew it. Something about what Jesus said commended to the deepest part of his being, and he knew there's no other place we can go. There's no other man like you. You have the words of eternal life. And here's the deal, people. We do too. The book of Colossians and all of the body of Scripture is God speaking to us, and those words carry with them eternal life. We have a book filled with them. Through the meaning of the words, we are granted eternal life. But that's not the ultimate purpose of Scripture. Eternal life is glorious and awesome, but it's not the ultimate reason. So what is the ultimate reason? Let's, let's ask a question here, because this is where we, we need to really sort of dig deep and think hard, like Paul's telling us to do. How do we get saved through the Scripture? What is it about the Scripture that does that? Um, 
We know, according to Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel. And so what that means is at the center of all of Scripture is, and really the main focus of our Bibles, is what we refer to as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. That's why we have salvation in the first place, what Jesus did. And in order to be saved, we all know in this room, we must believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must trust Christ and receive him through the gospel. And here's the thing about the Bible, all of scripture, no matter what word, no matter what phrase, no matter what sentence you're looking at it, points to Jesus it does. Whether it's pointing ahead toward what he would accomplish once and for all, or whether it's pointing back saying he did it, it all points to Jesus Christ. Every page, every sentence is about Jesus. And one of the greatest tragedies in the world is that people are blind to that. They are blind to it. They can't see it. They read it and it's it's another religious book. I don't want it. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us what this blindness looks like. It says, the God, all right, (laughs) some sort of AI robot behind there. Um, It says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is the default state of every human being born blind and he refers to the gospel he says it's the light of the gospel of the glory of christ that's the gospel the gospel is whether it's whether it's read in a book or whether it's preached to a a group of people or whether it's taught in a kid's ministry no matter where it's communicated the gospel isn't just a nice story It is, according to this text, light. It is light. It is the only thing that can eradicate the blindness of unbelief. So here's the key. This is the key that's going to help us answer that third question. What is the ultimate purpose of God mediating grace to us through the scriptures? Paul describes this light, the gospel, as the glory of Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is that the gospel shows us the glory of Jesus It shines the brightest through the cross. It's the whole purpose of the scriptures. The ultimate reason for the grace of the scriptures, for Paul saying, grace to you at the front end and grace be with you at the back end, is that in the scriptures we see the clearest, and in the gospel, the clearest picture of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We see the summit of, and the apex of God's glory in the cross. The cross and the grace of God in it isn't just a story that helps us understand God's grace. It is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. It is Christ clothed in the gospel. And so I want to look at Ephesians 1 here, and I want to see if we can, at this, in this text, see the ultimate reason God's grace is mediated to us through the scriptures. Ephesians 1 says this, In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise 
of the glory of his grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Remember, Paul says, grace be with you, Colossians. He's taking their eyes and he's putting them on Jesus and on the cross. That we see Jesus clothed in the gospel as the point of all reality. In our seeing of him, in that way, as the apex of his glory, our hearts soar with joy at what he did on that tree. In seeing him, see, here's the thing. We, we, were, we were made to worship. We were made to praise. That's what we were made to do. We've always been made to do that. We were made and created to worship. And his grace in the cross isn't only the means by which we can do that, but it is the focal point of all of our worship. It is the focus of our worship. It is the main thing we exalt in most to the praise of the glory of his grace. We're looking, when we look at this text in Ephesians 1, we are looking into eternity. That small phrase, (laughs) to the praise of the glory of his grace, or to the praise of his glorious grace, is looking into the heart of eternity because that is the thing that we will exalt in most. God is seeking worshipers that see him like he really is. Not an abstraction, but a God who reached into human history and redeemed them. And at that point that we see him in the cross of Jesus Christ, we become a worshiper that can worship him freely and love him freely. The gospel is not only his means for creating worshipers, it is the ultimate focus of our praise forever. That's what I'm trying to say here. So I want you to listen to a scene in Revelation 5. And if you're in Christ Jesus, if you're in Christ, if you trust him and receive him, I want you to know that this event that we're looking at here is not just a series of words. It is not just a cute story. This event is your future. You will be here with these people. Here it is, verses 11 through 13. It says, Then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is what Paul means when he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. We will sing about the cross for eternity. Our future, see, we were made to sing these songs. That's why you were made. That's why I was made. We were made to sing these songs. And the reason we can sing them is the grace that is brought to us in Christ Jesus, and that grace will thrill us for in eternity. It will be our song forever, forever. This grace not only anchors us to the hope of the gospel, and it, let me just say this, the reason this grace can anchor us to the hope of the gospel is because Jesus Christ was anchored to a cross for us. He bought it, he 
purchased it. It is ours because he was the one who suffered and died for us. But the grace also isn't just the means by which we get it. It is the very source of our joy forever. Like Peter said, to whom will we go? Who would we go? Show me a greater joy in this world. There is none. There is none. You, Jesus Christ, have the words of eternal life. And so, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you receive the grace of the gospel, we're going to be celebrating communion today. And what I really want you to do is, as you do that, as you take the elements, I want you to really prayerfully think about what was purchased for you. Not only the means by which you can receive it, but the very focal point of your eternity was purchased by his body and blood. And as you sing songs, recognize, this is so important for us to see, we we so disconnect Sunday from what we're going to be doing forever. Right now, in this room, as we sing songs, because of all that he's done for us, This is the beginning of an anthem that will never end. It's not going to end. We will be singing in, in great jubilation and joy for eternity because of this God and King. And that is the ultimate purpose of God's grace in the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so merciful. You are so kind and gentle to us. The witness of creation to your great power and awesome authority and glory is irrefutable. No matter what we say or think or what anybody says or thinks, it is irrefutable. You are real and you've shown us great mercy in all that we have but that you would deign to come down, as John Calvin says, and speak with a lisp using human words so that we could see you is an unparalleled grace. And Father, I repent right now of my own, and I welcome my brothers and sisters in Christ, of my own trifling with your word, of it sitting unused, unread, unstudied, unthought over, Father God. I pray that that we would all turn from that. Anybody who struggles with that, we turn from it and that we would fix our eyes on the glory of Jesus Christ in this book and that we would become addicted to this book, that it would dominate our hearts and our affections and everything that we do. We would see the glory of Christ Jesus and we would embrace it with such transformative sight given to us by the Holy Spirit that it would forever change our walk, that our delights would become focused on you, on your purposes, and that we would with Tychicus become a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ willing to give up everything for you. I pray that over my friends here, over myself, and and everyone who can hear my voice, Father God, that you would do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.